0: Up here till you say that. So I appreciate. All right. Let's pause and pray. Father God, we appeal to you as weak creatures. And deserved of speaking your name in a fatherly light. We approach you in the name of Jesus, who is worthy. And we again praise you for your grace and your mercy, which you have abundantly poured out in our midst, in our hearts. And Lord, we know that in Him is life, and He is your Word made manifest, and so your word is now before us, and so I have to believe that it's living and it's active and that as surely you have spoken, so surely it is and so surely it will be. So I pray that you would, and I ask that you would use your word today and this week and this year to set our hearts ablaze, to cause in us a zeal and a desire and a hunger for you that can only be explained by your present working in us. So Lord, we appeal to you for, for what that is, it's life. And uh, may you open our eyes to the treasure that is before us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen you ever uh, broken a promise? That's kind of a rhetorical question everybody would answer. Yes, that's human nature, we would say. That's something that's just a part of what we do, and it's bad, but we do it. And sometimes we don't even aim to do it. Sometimes we break promises or we don't follow through on our word because something has intervened and made that impossible. Or we didn't have full knowledge to be able to promise what we thought we could. And so the older I get, the older we get, I think, the more that we may realize how not in control we are. How impossible it is for us to say, this day I'll go here, and this day I'll go there. We kind of read that in James. And so we should learn to speak according to our nature um, and say, if the Lord wills. Right? Because we are not infallible. We're not without error. We're not all-knowing. We're not omniscient. We, We can't know the future. We can't even... Sometimes know what's going on in the present. And we're not all powerful. We can't cause all things to happen that we desire to happen. So we have to understand that when we speak, it's kind of in that context. But what we're going to learn in Matthew chapter 2 is that God speaks in a different way than we do. Everything that I just said that we're incapable of doing, God is capable of doing. So when he speaks, he speaks definitively. He speaks surely. He makes promises abundantly. And he can cause all things to fulfill his word, which he does. And so if you are feasting on your Bibles... From Genesis to the maps, you begin to see that. That should be one of the doctrines that pops out at you about God. Is that He can promise, He can speak with all power and all wisdom. He can cause all things to work according to His word and His will. And we live under that. And we should acknowledge that. Now, the comforting part of that for God's people is that when He makes promises, when He declares things that will happen in the immediate future or in the distant future, or when He declares what eternity will look like with Him in glory and how He will bring us there, we should be absolutely 100% certain of what He said. That's why the Word of God is so important. That's why we're going to undertake an endeavor to memorize it. Because it's the only surety in the world. It's the only sure thing. It's it's the the thing that you can invest in and count on it to return what it has said 100% of the time. So it becomes more than just something God said. It becomes absolute truth. Even if it's something to come. So that this whole Bible becomes not only true, but sure. And the the amazing thing about chapter 2, as we kind of continue in the birth narrative of Jesus, is that people in the world understood that God said and promised certain things. And then when they came to pass, or when God actually... Fulfilled the prophecy and the promises that he made, they were scared, they were threatened, they were indifferent. They they didn't believe that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. So when he actually does it, it catches them off guard. They're not ready for it. And at a lot of times, right, Matthew's kind of foreshadowing in chapter two how people are going to respond to Jesus. They're offended by it. (laughs) God is the only being in all of existence who is capable of doing everything he says. Not only capable, but he will do everything he says. And so as you read your Bibles, I, I hope you read it in that light that when he tells you the way things are or the way things are going to be you have to read that as the absolute truth and then your life will be lived in accordance with that everything will be shaped around those realities everything you do and everything you think in the and the way you work and the way you give and the way you move about and the way you interact with people will be shaped by the fact that God said certain things will happen and I'm moving towards that or I'm in the middle of that and that is the only truth that is 100% sure. Um, So we begin here in chapter 2. With the visit of the Magi, or the wise men, and they're going to come see this king. and And I want you to know something about these wise men first. They're not kings, okay? So that Christmas song, "We Three Kings," it's inaccurate. They're not kings. They're Magi. They're wise men. They are um, counselors, advisors to kings. I guess, in our modern terminology, they might be like the President's cabinet or something like that uh, so and they these guys come from Persia, they come from far away, and it's there's not three of them, all right. We get three because there's three gifts that we read of, and so we think, oh well, each one of them had a gift, so that'd be three of them. No, there would have been many, and they would have had a large entourage these guys uh I don't want to say traveled in style, but they didn't, uh, they didn't travel hard. They had everything they needed. They had an abundance of things to give. Um, and they made sure that they had help. Servants, guards, all sorts of stuff. So much so that that's why Herod takes notice of them. They roll into town on this mission to find the, the one who's been born king of the Jews, and it's such an honorage, it's such a, uh, a big group that people are aware. Something new has happened. Some, there's some reason that these people are here. So, number one, that's a big deal that these people have come into town. And number two, it's interesting they are kind of astrologers and astronomers. They're, they're kind of mixing um, signs from the heavens with, with actual astrology, you know, looking at stars and the universe and the solar system. There's kind of blurred lines in what these guys believe. But yet God speaks to them. God makes aware to them That a prophecy is being fulfilled now. A major prophecy, right? That this king of the Jews, this Messiah, is born in first century Israel. And so uh, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So everybody is wondering what's going on with this big entourage, this big caravan coming into Jerusalem of people from the east that we don't know. And and they tell him. So Herod is troubled, and we would expect that. He's not a believer. He's, He's... supposedly king of the Jews. So, who's ever coming in to be the new king of the Jews threatens his authority and his reign. This is the Herod who had his wife killed and three of his sons because they, he thought they threatened his reign. Can you imagine? This is who this guy is. So, as soon as he hears this, immediately, trouble. Now, that's not surprising. What is surprising is that all Jerusalem with him was troubled. And I I always like to tell people this, imagine the coming of Jesus, whether you want to place yourself in the first century or whether you're looking for his second coming, place yourself in the absolute reality of that coming to be. Are you terrified or are you running to where he is? And that'll tell you a lot about where your heart is, where your spirit is. And look at all Jerusalem. They're troubled, along with Herod. They're scared. They understand intuitively, as God has created us, and as we have become sinners, and as we we live under this guilt that some people can't really articulate, but they know internally that it has something to do with how they've offended their maker, their creator of all the universe. And, And it troubles us to be confronted with His presence. That's, that's intuitive to all of human existence. And one of two things happens when we feel that. We run away deeper, uh, farther into the darkness to try and cover ourselves, right? To try and escape the, the uh, reality of our sin and shame and, and the condemnation that befalls us because there is a good creator that we can recognize from his creation and even from his word, if some have heard it. And so they try and distance themselves farther and farther away from that, like they could escape that. And then by the grace of God, some cry out for mercy. And God grants grace. And God heals, and God restores, and God makes a new creation. He makes a holy people that cry out in that way. But one of two things is going to happen when humans feel that. Every human being living on this earth is doing one of those two things. And we know from John 1, right, that he came, the Messiah came to his own people, the Jews, who, who had a right a heavy gathering in their land, in their holy city of Jerusalem. He came to his own people, and his own people, what, did not know him. But the truth of the matter is they didn't want to know him. Because he's about to change everything. And when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to learn a little more about why they didn't want to know him. Because they don't get in by association. They get in through holiness, which does not characterize them or any of us. It only characterizes Jesus. So we only come in through him. And they don't like that. They like self-righteousness. So they're all troubled. And Herod assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. <clears throat> he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Okay, So he's got the, the rabbis. Uh, he's got the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He's got them all together. And he says, you tell me where this Christ is to be born. The anointed one, the, the future king. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is one of four times in one chapter where Matthew tells us that God is doing what he said he would do. Or he is making good on promises or making known to us exactly what he means by what he said. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Right? He's being deceptive. He's lying. He doesn't want to worship him. He wants to... Uh, neutralize and destroy any threat to his throne. It's all he's concerned about. But it's also interesting that the wise men, when they speak of who they're looking for, they speak of him in a way of, of he is worth worship. And Herod picked up on that and appealed to them in that way. Yeah, he, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's worthy to be worshipped. Yeah, we need to do that. So tell me where he is. So it's, it's amazing to me that these magi understand somewhat of the, the majesty of who this is. This isn't a normal baby being born. This is somebody who is fulfilling all Jewish prophecy like all of it, like from Genesis 3.15 on. And they seem to know that. And because of that, they understand that he is worthy of adoration, praise, thanks. He is worthy of whatever they can bring him as far as gifts. He is worthy of this trip that is well over a thousand miles and would have taken maybe a year from where they were coming from. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So God spoke to these magi because he decided to use them and to do this and to to bring the gravity of the situation to bear through (coughs) these distant foreigners and wise men that are giving all of their time and resources to find this fulfillment of ancient prophecy. And then he uses the heavens to get them to where Jesus is. He speaks through the stars. And if you read Hebrews, you'll understand that at one point in time, God spoke through prophets. He spoke through many and various different ways. But now, as Jesus had appeared, he speaks through him. So some of the last um, acts of speaking to the world here about what he's doing is through the stars. And it's hard to imagine, it's hard to picture, It's, it's, it's difficult for Bible scholars to figure out just exactly how this worked, but somehow the knowledge of the stars and the solar system um, that these men had, they, they, they followed a star to a specific location. And it brought them to this humble scene and cause them to immediately do what? Fall down and worship. A, a, a family that's somewhat normal. I mean, their circumstances aren't normal. But they're, but they're in this humble place. And their response to this child is to fall down and worship. These wise men believe what God had promised <clears throat> and believe he now fulfilled it. It's almost as if we're seeing them become believers in Christ at this very moment. They are counting on the fact that what they're seeing (coughs) lying in a manger is the king. Now, they're not Jewish. And they said this is the king of the Jews. But they fall down and worship him even so. What are they doing? They're recognizing that he is above them. That he's worthy of this. And their gifts are significant. Both for the immediate context of Mary and Joseph and Jesus and for the future foreshadowing of what Jesus is to do. They they give him gold. That's... That's signifying that he's royalty, right? So that's a kingly gift. It's an expensive gift. It's regal, it's royal, and even it's surely to be used for their future travels, right? Because they're going to have to depart and go to Egypt for a little bit. So God is providing right here. They give fragrances which is the, the only um, incense to be mixed on the altar, it's the, it's the only one that is authorized to be mixed with other things, to put on sacrifices on the altar to offer to God, signifies His deity, that He is God. And myrrh, it's like a perfume, right? Right? And it's mixed with other spices <clears throat> during Jesus' burial. As, as the women go to bring these things, right, to, per, to prepare his body after he's been in the tomb three days, uh, they're not going to be able to put it on him. But that's what they're bringing to the tomb. It signifies his humanity. That he's in a real flesh and blood. And that he is actually going to die on account of us. And then God further directs, according to his sovereign will, and he says, don't go back to Herod. Uh, Take the long way around. Now, verse 13. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Recognize every time in Matthew, when we when we get to these points, whenever Matthew says this was to fulfill or the prophet said or what God said came to pass, whenever he signifies that this is fulfilling something that was promised or prophesied or declared, Pay attention to that. So when we look at Israel, right, that is uh, enslaved in Egypt and being brought out. Now in the Old Testament, all of Israel is called God's firstborn, his son. But they don't behave like his son. They break all his rules. They break covenant with him. They turn on him as an enemy and they don't worship him as a father. And so when Israel is actually being brought out, right, in the Exodus, that is pointing to something greater. That Jesus is representing all of God's people. Jesus is true Israel. And Jesus is bringing us out of enslavement to sin into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. The promised land is dwelling with him. And that's only possible through who? Jesus. Out of Egypt I called my son. And we all become sons and daughters of promise through Jesus. And so even the little thing, even the travels, even the moment-by-moment the footsteps of this family that is, uh, that is um, stewarding uh, the, the gift of the Messiah here on earth in the flesh, all of that is directed by God in a way that lets us know this is who he is. This is the Son of God. Now, also recognize this, and this is, gonna, this is a tough thing. The angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord, told Joseph that Herod is going to search for the child because he wants to destroy him. So what is known? What's coming? What's coming is the destruction of children. And God knows this. Not only that, but we're told back in Jeremiah that it's gonna happen. And that when when back in Jeremiah, so what's happening in Jeremiah, especially towards the end, is Israel is being exiled, they're being taken captive from Jerusalem into Babylon around five eighty six BC or something like that. Okay? And and the idea there is that there is no no more sons or daughters of Israel left in Israel. And it's, it's great mourning and great weeping because Israel's essentially no more. Israel's essentially dead. But that has further implications even from Jeremiah. The further implications of is what is to take place at the coming of the Messiah. But because of the coming of the Messiah, the things that take place in this world that are so wicked and awful and destructive find their redemption in Him. And so we turn now to verses 16 through 18 to this incredible scene. And I've actually preached this to you before because it's so awful and amazing at the same time, right? That sounds messed up, but it is, okay? Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. The, okay, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So it wasn't fulfilled when they're being taken into exile. It's fulfilled now. Verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So what happened in Israel back then was a foreshadowing of what would happen now. Now, here's the thing about Matthew that you have to do. Whenever you see prophecy being fulfilled and cited by Matthew and his gospel, you have to go back and read it. Because then you get the full understanding, the full picture of what's going on and how Matthew has connected the dots between what was prophesied and promised and what actually happened in Israel to how all of this is now being fulfilled in Jesus. So you go back to Jeremiah 31. And you read this, and you start out in the chapter, and you realize, okay, Israel's been bad. (laughs) And they're mourning because of the judgment of God. And yet God is promising good things to them, especially when you get to verse 31 through 34. He's promising uh, a new covenant to write laws on our, his law on our heart to, to dwell with us, to have this new covenant, to know him. We know him personally through this new covenant. This is the promise that is to come. This is Jeremiah 31. But you back up to verse 13. And you begin to read more of this prophecy that Matthew understands his readers to know. Jeremiah 31, 13, Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Now, here's the prophecy that Matthew cites. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. (laughs) Wow. He just switched from great hope to really depressing words. But you're supposed to keep reading. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. Do you see that? I'm, I'm interpreting there in verse 16, the reward for their work. Their work is, is the giving of their children involuntarily and in an awful way uh, to, to facilitate the will of the Lord in bringing the Messiah to bear. Jesus has been protected. They are sacrificing on behalf of him. So they are in constant sorrow because of the, uh, involunt- the the unjust murder of their children because Jesus came. They are in constant weeping because they have lost what is dear to them. But even fast forward in Matthew's gospel to Matthew 19, 29, and what does he tell people? Uh, Peter tells them, look, Jesus, we left our houses, our homes, our families for you. What reward is there? And we'll just go there and read it. Matthew nineteen twenty nine, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will what inherit eternal life. And we know that God is life, that Jesus is life, and that He destroys sin and death by His work on the cross. And therefore, he holds all souls in his hand that are his. And he's promised these people through this prophecy that is now being fulfilled, your children will come back to their land. What's their land? It is a dwelling with God that is promised to them. So the awful destruction of innocent children, that young, will be redeemed. They will be glorying and singing in heaven as, as almost martyrs, I assume, because of what they gave lives for the Messiah. And the people that mourn, the families that mourn as childs were, children were ripped from their hands and from their homes and executed right in front of them uh, for no other reason than the fact that they were born at the same time as the Messiah. They will be rewarded. I know that God will redeem those people and those families because Jesus came to do it. And if he doesn't preserve Jesus, then all of that destruction, all of the destruction that's ever happened for all of time, everything that sin has caused to go wrong in this world and in the lives and hearts of God's people, it's for nothing. Except that the Messiah lives and the Messiah reigns. And that he fulfills all prophecy. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, there's nowhere in Scripture that you can find that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So the only thing that we can surmise that Matthew is pointing to is one of two things. Either because of in Hebrew the word for Nazarene sounds like branch. So the prophecy in Isaiah 11.1 1 about the, the branch that's to come from uh, the stump of, of Jesse, the root of David, that's Jesus. So we could be referring to that branch that Jesus is the one who's promised. But I think it's more so pointing to the fact that the Messiah, it's prophesied that He would be despised greatly. Despised by men, hated by men. Psalm 22.6, Isaiah 49.7, Isaiah 53.3 especially point to the fact that men hate Him. That He is spit on. That he is blasphemed, that that he is treated as, as worse than a worm, that men shake their heads at him, that he's not even found to be an appearance that we should esteem him more highly than any other man, but he's rejected. I think that's what Matthew's pointing to. Because as you move through the rest of his gospel, the encounters he has with Especially uh, those who are supposed to to be teaching Israel are very much despising rejecting him. So So much so that when we get to his time, as he prophesies, at the cross, you see that. Nobody, nobody in all of human history has been as despised or as rejected as Jesus. And we can only say that because he was perfect. He perfectly loved, he perfectly gave, and yet they treated him like this. So the prophecy is fulfilled that he would be despised. Can you? If somebody told you, look, I'm going to send you on a mission, right? And you're going to go to this place, and 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 right, you're, my, you're a king, okay? You're a king, and, and you're all this, but I'm going to send you to a place where they hate you. Uh, not only that, they're, they're going to hate you so much that at some point in time they're going to kill you. Shamefully. Wickedly. Uh, They're going to hate you more than murderers, rapists. And I want you to go, and I want you to endure that. That doesn't sound like a trip that I'd like to go on. But Jesus did, because he knows the glory that's to come. Because he knows the promises of God. And because he knows they're sure. And because he knows this, because he is God, that the Lord uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That the things that he does in order to fulfill his promises don't appear in an earthly sense to make any sense. They're not the way that we would structure uh, things to go. But 1 Corinthians talks a little bit about how God does this. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul's talking about um, the cross and the power of God. He says, The word of the cross, or redemption by a crucifixion, is folly, it's foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written in Isaiah 29.14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Skip down to verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers... Jesus being born to a young virgin in a manger and then coming from a town that was despised by everybody around him. And then, not only that, but then to die a a cursed death naked on a cross. How is this the King of the Jews? How is God fulfilling his promises? Well, in just the way we read in 1 Corinthians. He is choosing all the foolish things to display to us that He alone is sovereign over everything and everyone and every circumstance in this world so that He can make the things that are not something. He can take a cross which was designed by the evil of men and He can make that a tool for redemption for those very men. And so that Christians look to a cross, and we put it up everywhere, and we recognize that that symbol of death and destruction was actually what bought us freedom. And that that God did that. We wouldn't have chose to do that. Because God makes good on his word in the ways that he is deemed by the counsel of his own will to do so. And all of this fulfillment of prophecy is Him displaying to us. Matthew recording all of this and connecting the dots by the Holy Spirit is, is trying to let us be sure of the fact that when God speaks, God will cause it to happen and you might think it's silly or foolish. But God is all powerful and all wise. And He will cause all things to work for good, according to the counsel of his will. And so chapter 2, he did it. (laughs) In all these ways, he did it. So Matthew's setting us up in faith to watch the rest of this narrative unfold until we get to the cross. And to stand there at the foot of the cross and ask, do we believe God is still going to fulfill his promise? Read your Bible that way this year. And I pray that you would um, ask God for eyes to see and ears to hear now as you respond to him, and then we'll stand and sing together.